Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is May 7th, 2018. I, I should mention that last Friday I introduced the show um, saying that it was March 4th, 2018. Um, my, my defense is that it was a complete brain fart. And, and, and here in Wisconsin, we really didn't have much of a spring. So it was a, it was a nice day and I was thinking it was March. Well, joining me today, uh, Chris Deaton of the Weekly Standard and Jim Swift, who is one of the folks who makes this podcast happen. Uh, happy Monday, gentlemen. Happy Monday. Hello, sir. Well, let's talk about uh, the breaking story this morning. Um, our colleague John McCormick has some internal polls from West Virginia that uh, apparently are causing Republicans to freak out that Don Blankenship is actually leading in these polls that despite having what is arguably the worst campaign commercial ever, and despite having served time in prison for the death of minors, um, he apparently is surging. Um, what's happening in West Virginia? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Well, I think what's happening in West Virginia is similar to what's happening in a lot of places across the country, Charlie. I think to lead off here, we have to keep in mind that West Virginia's Republican electorate, and this is even just the GOP side of things here, the people who will be voting in the GOP primary, so just not the electorate in general, even that subset of voters in West Virginia is probably to a degree different than the average Republican you're going to find in Massachusetts, different than the one you'll find in Indiana, Texas, New Mexico, so on and so forth. But still, I think- I, I, sense, a a, I sense a euphemism here. Yes, I still think <laughs> I still think that there is this idea that, look, we have to consider Donald Trump as a symptom of a larger stick it to the elites type of movement in the country when it comes to looking candidates like Don Blankenship. Um, that message, no matter who it is applied to nowadays, has resonance. And when you see Donald Trump having success on a national stage, a lot of voters, I think, are going to be empowered to say, hey, this Blankenship guy, if for no other reason than it is just stick it to the elites mode, Regardless of his policies, regardless of whatever criminal transgressions he's made in his past, he does get that one thing overtly right more than any other candidate running. And for that reason alone, a certain subset of voters in a split field like you see in West Virginia are going to make him viable. Okay, now let's just – do you guys remember that quote? Was it from Congressman Massey from, from Kentucky? Yes. From last year? I, I, thought, I thought it was one of the most revealing. Um, at one point um, – I can't remember what the context was. He was saying that at one point he thought that uh, voters were voting for candidates like him and, uh, and Rand Paul because they, they supported libertarian principles. Um, but he, he had come to start thinking that Republican primary voters were just voting for – I think his phrase was the craziest son of a bitch on the ballot. Yep. And that's why they were voting for him. And Donald Trump won best in class. So are you saying that basically Don Blankenship is the craziest son of a bitch on the ballot in West Virginia, and that's why he's surging? I would say that. Um, Chris and I actually worked for the member of Congress who occupied uh, Kentucky's 4th District before uh, Massey did. And it's interesting that, you know, we had a pretty conventional boss in that district uh, who was not crazy and was a, you know, kind of traditional business-oriented Republican. And you get Thomas Massey who kind of like lives off grid in his, you know, engineer, <laughs> engineering marvel of a house. Um but uh, yeah, no, he it, Blankenship is, and you know, right now he's talking to reporters and basically uh, saying, "Oh, the president is going after me." But you know, he was also the guy uh, telling uh, people to vote for someone accused of pedophilia. And <laughs> I mean, he does have a point there. 
but uh, he also uh, is quoted as saying that uh, the government caused the uh, uh, Upper Big Branch mine disaster um, sure. that, that put him in jail. The government did it, not him. Well, so, so tr- Trump is actually tweeting out um, that this would be a disaster to nominate him. D- does that make a difference in in a race in which the the outcome may be determined by a couple of points? Uh, it, it does seem reasonable to think that that might tip the balance. Oh, I think so. Certainly anything when you get inside of the margin of error, which, you know, I don't know what exactly the margin of error of these internal polls is, but anytime you get within a point or two or three, which is the spread that we're seeing between Blankenship and whoever is coming in second, um, anything is liable to tip the scale. What I think is interesting, Charlie, the dynamic here that is just so bizarre is that Blankenship, the candidate who you would imagine is the most Trumpy of all the candidates in the race, like Jim observed, is the one who is being slighted by the president right now, who is asking West Virginia Republicans to support somebody else in the primary. So what message ends up holding more weight with those West Virginia voters? Is it the stick it to the elites type of thing, regardless of all of the bizarre attributes about Blankenship that Jim just listed, or is it the word of President Trump himself? These two things are in conflict with each other, which is both abnormal and hilarious. And I'm very curious to see what is going to end up happening on the margins here, because it's clearly very, very close. Yeah, this 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 does feel a little bit like uh, like Alabama all over again, where you get the sense that uh, that even even the Trumpists are beginning to realize that perhaps they uh, they can no longer control all of the forces that they have unleashed in the world. It's the mm-hmm. we, we we nurse the baby alligator in the bathtub and look 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 what it's grown into, and uh, all striving to be the last person not to be eaten. Now, speaking of Senate primaries, will be kind of a theme of the podcast today. Uh, Chris, you have uh, a really interesting piece about the internal dynamics of Indiana's Senate race. And again, this is one of those races that on paper is quite winnable for Republicans. Um, now, the headline they put on your piece was uh, what campaigning on bended knee. So mm-hmm. just tell us a little bit about uh, the the rivalry going on in Indiana and uh, who's on bended knee. Well, for starters, I think that the idea of Republicans in a Senate primary all rushing to try to be the most loyal to Trump is not unusual or unique to Indiana. But one thing that you do see in this particular race is that you have this rivalry between two rising star congressmen, Luke Messer and Todd Rokita. They went to the same school. They're both young. They have different temperament. Messer is more of a laid-back guy. Rokita is more pugnacious, so there's a little bit of a difference there. But these two guys were ostensibly the favorites at the outset of this thing just because of donor access, name recognition, those types of things. Along comes this self-styled outsider businessman candidate named Mike Braun, who has run his own distribution company for years and is very light on political experience He's almost senior age, 64 years old, getting into politics relatively late in the game here. And he has managed to take advantage of a split field by presenting himself as Trump-like in terms of being an outsider businessman type of candidate, not necessarily in terms of temperament, in terms of rhetoric, even in terms of certain policy, because he doesn't go out there and talk about immigration and building the wall. In fact, he told me that one of his endorsers, former Senator Tom Coburn, is the type of guy that he would want to take after the most once he got to the Senate. And remember, Tom Coburn is very much of a good government fiscal restraint type of guy. 
But each one of these candidates in their own way is trying to go out of their way to sell themselves as the most Trump-like. And they continue to throw down a new Trump card every ad, every debate. Well, no, Todd, you're the guy who said that Donald Trump was vulgar at one point, said Braun during a debate. And Luke Messer is out there saying, well, you know, actually, you know, Mike Braun has voted in Democratic primaries his entire life, which is true. And that's kind of, kind of a common thing among a lot of Indiana voters, particularly in the southern part of the state where it's mm-hmm. very Democratic. But him saying that, no, you know, you can't lay claim to being the most Trump-like in the race. And you just have this kinetic activity between all of these guys trying to outdo each other to the finish line. Who do you think has the edge right now? Who Who is the, uh, who, who, who's making the move? I think Braun is definitely the conventional wisdom favorite at this point. I mean, Charlie, the, the race itself is so light on polling. There was one public poll from Gravis Marketing that took um, – a lot of flack, I think, for myriad reasons. It had a pretty limited sample. It was questionable uh, how many Republicans yeah. were actually in the sample. The margin of error is pretty big. And it showed Mike Braun with like a 10-point lead, but he was only at 26%. And this was like 10 or 14 days ago. And there really hasn't been anything else in terms of data that's been publicly available um, ever since. But most of the betting money is on Braun. Um, Messer was the conventional wisdom favorite at the beginning of this thing. Mm-hmm. His campaign has not gotten any traction. Neither has Rokita's. Braun's the one who spent the most money. He has the most alluring message. He's been the most distinct candidate. So for a lot of reasons, you have to think he's the favorite. But Messer did tell a local Indiana political reporter, I think last week, that the leader of this race right now might be the undecideds. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it breaks out. This is another indication, though, of the degree to which, going back to the West Virginia primary, the degree to which these primaries um, reflect how Trumpian the Republican electorate has become. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at uh, Todd Rokita, for example. Uh, he's running a, a, a television commercial wearing a Trump MAGA hat and, uh, you know, calls Braun a lifelong Democrat and uh, goes after the never Trumpers. And, and it really is a, a, a virtue signaling uh, exercise between candidates to, to uh, outdo each other in support of, of President Trump. Yeah, at some point we'll have to talk about what's going on in the Wisconsin, um, the Wisconsin Senate primary, which also has a sort of a similar, you know, sub theme going on. That's not immediate. The vote is not till uh, August, although there is a Republican convention coming up in May where you have uh, one former Democrat, Kevin Nicholson, who is so anxious to show that he's really a conservative uh, that not only is he Trumpian, he's beyond Trumpian, he's Bannon-esque, he got, uh, you know, Steve Bannon's uh, endorsement. And you may have seen, he he mentions that he is a veteran at every, uh, on every occasion, I mean, literally on every occasion. Um, but that apparently is not enough. Now he is suggesting that he cannot even imagine why um, anyone who is a veteran would even vote for Democrats and, and citing his service a, as the uh, evidence of his conservatism. And that's not going over that well. Um, but of course, we know there's no such thing as a meltdown in American politics anymore. We learned that from 2016. Anybody want to make any sense of Rudy Giuliani's bizarre weekend? Um, Rudy Giuliani, who seems to be the latest in, in a long series of, of folks who had uh, really sterling reputations, who, who now who, who now are, are throwing it on the bonfire of Trumpism. Over the weekend, in his latest clarification of his clarification of, of his clarifications, he suggests or appears to suggest that, yes, um, uh, Donald Trump's lawyer may have paid off other uh, women, 
uh, to, to buy their silence from uh, from a slush fund that the president may ignore a subpoena and that Donald Trump may actually take the Fifth Amendment. So, Jim Swift, how do you think this is going, um, either as a legal strategy or a PR strategy? Uh, I think it's going according to plan uh, because we're talking about Rudy and we're not really talking as much about uh, President Trump. We're talking about Rudy. And um, well, I don't think it's intentional that uh, he hasn't, in the words of President Trump, like learned the facts yet. Um, but it's interesting that the president and his uh, legal team would allow him uh, to go on uh, television just so soon without really any uh, clear indication, at least from the Trump camp's perspective, that he really knows what's going on. Uh, Jay Sekulow has been uh, President Trump's attorney for a very long time, and you think, uh, I guess compared to Rudy or the other people who have uh, briefly held the position, you'd think he would be the one that you'd send on the Sunday shows because he has the greatest grasp of the facts. But uh, no, they just rush out Rudy. Very odd. Yeah, well, very odd because he's basically saying that, yes, I'm going to give, what, 11 or 12 interviews before I actually learn what the facts of this case are. I mean, who would have thought that, that would be a bad idea? It's a great idea in, in, in Trump's America. I mean, just half-ass, you know, half-ass everything instead of whole-assing one thing. Well, James Holman, uh, who writes uh, for uh, The Washington Post, puts out a newsletter, says uh, Rudy Giuliani has neither reduced Donald Trump's legal exposure nor helped him in the court of public opinion during his week-long media blitz. Um, but the former New York City mayor's pugnacity has pleased the president, but can at last. And he points out that there are like seven things he's doing that generally uh, end badly for people in Trump world. He's overconfident about his standing with the presidency. He's being compared to Anthony uh, Scaramucci. He's behaving like a principal, not a staffer. That was always an adjustment that uh, uh, that was going to be difficult. He's embarrassing the president with all of these you know, uh, changing the story about when the payoff was made, what it was for. He's clashing with the kids, suggesting that Jared Jared is disposable. He's, uh, he's ticking off some of uh, the key Trump friends. He's getting out of his lane, commenting on the Iran deal. All of these things that Rudy Giuliani is doing that has led to some speculation that he might not last. But again, you know, he only has an audience of one, right? I mean, this is this is this is the pattern. As long as Donald Trump likes the show, uh, it's going to go on regardless of the consequences. Yeah, right, Charlie. I mean, I, I was going to say I haven't read James's latest newsletter, but as you know, Jim was talking about here with Rudy going out on television without knowing all of the facts and doing this sort of media blitz before you even finish, Charlie, talking about. Uh, what James's actual quote was, that's what I was going to say, that, you know, the only thing that really seems to matter here, and it's uh, obviously a consistent trend, is Trump's insularity. I mean, it's living inside of his own world. The only thing that matters is if Stephen Miller goes out with Jake Tapper and, you know, makes a fool out of himself. doesn't matter because Stephen Miller is out there defending the president of the United States to the teeth, regardless of how it comes off to the outside world. To Trump, it's a person being loyal. And in the case of Rudy Giuliani, and you can talk about, you know, Trump citing Fox and Friends, Trump citing certain polls that might be cherry picking one out of 25 that shows something good for him. And it cuts against the grain of probably what the widely accepted narrative about his presidency is at the moment. Well, this thing looks good for me. So if Rudy's going out there and Trump is saying this thing looks good for me, like Jim said, mission accomplished. 
Yeah, and we're probably going to devote a uh, a longer podcast in full to to John McCain maybe later th- this week. But I have to comment on uh, over the weekend um, the reports that we're we're getting about uh, John McCain essentially disinviting uh, Donald Trump from his funeral. He's coming out with a book which uh, in McCain like as you would expect pulls absolutely no punches whatsoever. Apparently does the not apparently he does the audio book of his own book where he's talking about uh, um, his his imminent uh, d- departure um, and cooperated in a two hour HBO documentary. Uh, J- John McCain um, is 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 going out um, in a rather special. He's he's leaving nothing unsaid. Let me just put it that way, Jim Swift. It's it's the it's the last rodeo for the Straight Talk Express, and I'm about halfway through um, through his book right now, and it it's fantastic. Uh, you know, he wrote it with uh, co-wrote it with Mark Salter, his longtime aide, who co-wrote uh, all, I think mm-hmm. every other book he's ever published. Um, but why why <laughs> why would John McCain want the president of the United States, who basically kicked off his campaign insulting? John McCain and his and his heroism uh, to to attend his funeral. It's absurd. It, and then, of course, on Twitter, uh, people now are, are are going out of their way to insult John McCain to show their feel, is, fealty yeah. to Trump. It's disgusting. It is. It is. But it's I, I guess you're almost exhausted by the the the, the vileness of it all. But uh, the very conscious decision on his part um, to make his final argument, you know, in a, in a in a very in a very concerted way, that that he has something to say, he's going to say it, and he's going to say it in a dramatic way, and this uh, this is uh, you know one of Donald Trump's uh, misfortunes is that he he uh, is is president at a time when there are are so many rather dramatic contrasts to him as a leader, uh, as a as a person of character, a definition of being a patriot, and it's got to be uh, it's got to be galling. And it's got to be somewhat embarrassing for the conservatives who've basically made the kind of compromises we've been talking about to redefine the conservative movement and uh, and patriotism and American greatness in Trumpian terms. They have to come to grips with uh, with John McCain, and apparently, the only way that some of them can do that is by denigrating his uh, his reputation and his and his memory. Um, now, Chris, I, I imagine that the John McCain's mention of John McCain is, is is not going to be an applause line in many of these primary elections. Oh no, absolutely not. And, and to the point of you know John McCain's own example of leadership and patriotism, you know so much of that stuff nowadays when it comes to the Trump voter, I mean it is the eye of the beholder. I mean it's a complete Rorschach test for a lot of people across the country. Whereas some people might take the long view of John McCain's career and recall his military service and the captivity and torture that he went through. Um, the political career that he had longstanding, um, to borrow a term from President Trump himself many times along the way, widely respected, uh, you know, for a person like that to, you know, lead the kind of life he has and for a lot of people to view him and say, hey, you know, this guy has done a lot of good. There are a lot of people who are in Trump world or Trump voters themselves who say, well, that isn't leadership. This is just a guy who was another one of the elite. He's a member of the establishment. He's been there for too long. So it just ends up becoming a matter of two, you know, sets of people having completely different worldviews. And like you said, Charlie, in these particular primaries, the people who are out there voting for Don Blankenship or voting in Indiana who want to stick it to the elites, whoever they end up voting for, probably not the type of people who are going to assess John McCain has been is having a great uh, record of leadership recently. Okay, you guys want to play a little game of what if? Sure. 
Sure. Okay. So um, one of the things we learned over the weekend is that uh, is that John McCain regrets uh, not choosing Joe Lieberman as his vice presidential nominee running mate back in 2008, going with uh, the unfortunate Sarah Palin instead. So what if John McCain had picked Joe Lieberman? How would that have played out? Would that have made any difference in the 2008 election? I think it would have. Um, I mean, I was I was working in the Senate at the time for Arizona's other senator, John Kyle. And um, just a quick note, I mean, the era of McCain and McCainism is over. If you just look at the people trying sure. to replace Flake and if John McCain were to pass away, the types of people who, if they didn't win that seat, would run to replace him, most of them are nuts. But it, Joe Lieberman at the time, I mean— had really kind of lost his standing with the Democratic caucus. I mean, he had to run as an independent. Um, I mean, Lisa Murkowski was able to repeat what he did in a way uh, years later. But he he was uh, very close with Senator uh, McCain and my former boss, John Kyle. I, I do think that it could have brought some folks over. But it, it's it's but that, but, hard to yeah, stop that was, Obama. That was also the the era in which a lot of uh, conservative pundits pretended that they cared about ideological consistency and purity. Wouldn't there have been a, a backlash? Here's Joe Lieberman, it's proof he's know, a rhino. Democratic running mate. He ran with Al Gore, uh, unforgivable sin. Oh yeah. Remember, remember pre-Trump, that sort of thing was you know would, would have been a negative, right? Having once been a Democrat, contributed to Democrats, supported Democrats. Yeah, no. I mean, it was it, it was it was a different time. I mean, it's uh, the, those who demand consistency, of course, wonder where they are today. Uh, I, I don't think it would have won him the election, but uh, it could have made it a lot closer. And in the in the chapter uh, about this in, in his book, which I've I've definitely read that chapter. It was one of the early chapters, I think, chapter two. Um, you know, running against Barack Obama is is just so darn hard, and uh, it was really hard. And McCain, McCain's campaign had made some mistakes too, but. Being the change candidate, um, yeah, he could. He just too. couldn't. He just couldn't pull it off, and that's that's kind of why he liked Sarah Palin. Uh, it was a high risk, high uh, reward scenario, is what one of his advisors said, and he he took that gamble, and uh, you know, of course, it didn't pay off. Yeah. So, so Chris, you have a different take on that? No, not really. Yeah. I think that Jim's right when when he says it probably would have closed the gap, but you know, Barack Obama was a historical transformational candidate, and I'm not sure that anything could have gotten in the way of that broader movement in that particular election cycle. But just thinking about Lieberman in general, I mean, he wasn't Zell Miller or Arthur Davis, right? I mean, two guys who were Democrats who really kind of came to embrace much more of a broader Republican platform, espouse some conservative principles when they were out there batting on behalf of the Republican Party, Lieberman would have been that crossover candidate type of guy, would have made um, the McCain ticket obviously much more as if it needed needed this in general, but, uh, you know, a little bit more of a national security um, hawk or, you know, just, just that type of that type of campaign. That might have done something for a certain subset of voters who may have been a little more inclined mm -hmm. to vote for a more moderate ticket. But yeah, again, I mean, it's an... <laughs> It's agree, an indeterminate yeah. effect. You never know how that right. type of thing can uh, convince certain Republican voters to stay home. So maybe it brings a state like Virginia a little closer, you know, but ultimately, what was the final electoral college count? It was something it like 350 it, it to 180. So right. it wasn't a lot close, to overcome there. This is one of those choices that I think looks a lot better in retrospect. Now that we know everything we know, if you look back on it, it would have been a moment of bipartisanship. It would have been a moment of, you know, inclusivity. And it would have spared the nation Sarah Palin. 
you know, and 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 the you know Sarah Palin, who may be patient zero in the current political craziness that we're 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 going through, but uh, in the moment, it's it's hard to say, and I don't think it would have made that much of a difference. And no Sarah Palin blame uh, from the Weekly Standard, not at all. Well, you know what? It's one of those things. Hey, it seemed like a good idea at the time, right? Yeah. You go back and you, if you ever have those moments, you go back and you think, okay, I thought this was a good idea. What was I thinking? <laughs> but of course, we didn't know. We, you know, I mean, have I ever told you my my Sarah Palin story after she, after she appeared in um, in West Allis, Wisconsin, right before the Wisconsin primary? She spoke down there at uh, at historic Serb Hall. And gave what is widely regarded as the worst political speech ever that anyone had ever heard. It was just incoherent. It was bizarre. And I actually went back and I put the the, the two speeches side by side, went back and looked at the speech she gave when she got the nomination for vice president, the speech written by Mark Salter, I'm assuming. And, and you know, trying to figure out, you know, did I just not recognize how, how who she was or what she was or has something bad happened to her? And and I And I never really resolved that. Um, you know, you dress anybody up, you clean them up, you put lipstick on them, et cetera. You know, you give them a speech by Mark Salter and they can look pretty good. But but um, what she became, I think, was very different than what she was then. But again, had had John McCain made a different decision, um, our history would have been different. But of course, we never would have known that. That That's the whole problem with, you know, alternative histories. Right. Yeah. And reality TV would would have not been nearly as good as it has been. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me uh, today. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back again tomorrow.